Hello and welcome to the Race Show Podcast. I'm your host, Johnny Ray, and I'm coming to you from live in beautiful downtown Athens, Georgia. It's a nice overcast day, but the temperature's up a little bit. So, uh, yeah, it's good to be with you all. Um, we have a awesome show for you tonight. We've got Mr. Brian Poole from, uh, of Montreal and uh, Elf Power fame. And uh, he's going to come on and talk to us tonight, and it's a really uh, cosmic experience. So uh, be on the lookout for that here in just a few. Uh, but first off, want to thank everyone for all the great response and love for the uh, Marissa Nadler episode. It was so awesome to talk to her. I uh, hope everybody went out to 529 in Atlanta and uh, saw her play just recently. Um, but if not, make sure you pick up her records and uh, go down that rabbit hole. It's, it's, you'll be glad you did. Um, but tonight, we're going to be talking with a good friend of mine, Mr. Brian Poole. Um, and, and Brian is just, anybody that knows him, he is, he is just the best of the best, man. A, a great, great fucking guy. Um, very talented musician, multi-talented in many ways. Uh, but I had known Brian a little bit, but I, I, I started working with him about a year ago at Cine. And uh, every night was just uh, uh, just always a fun hang and a, uh, just an education in music. You know, he turned me on to so many killer bands, killer records, things I may have overlooked, things hell I'd never heard of ever. So uh, Brian, Brian is, is, is a, a cherished, cherished friend and a cherished addition to this uh, Athens music community. And uh, we're going to talk about all that and how he got started. And uh, without further ado, Mr. Brian Poole. Hello, Mr. Poole. How are you this evening? Mr. Ray, delighted. Yeah, delighted to have you uh, here. Uh, a very um, Athens-appropriate guest for the Ratio Podcast. We have Mr. Brian Poole on the show tonight. Say hello to everybody, Brian. Hello, everybody, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> well, we are here, uh, Brian of Elf Power, uh, of Montreal fame, and a million other uh, projects. We're going to discuss his musical journey tonight. <laughs> Wow, um, it's a long and winding road, yeah. It is. It is. Well, let's let's just start. Uh how did you um how did you ever get into music as far as writing and making? Do you remember the first song you wrote? Well, it's kind of a complicated question. Uh first record I ever got as a kid was Peter Pan. I was pretty stoked. Uh, my sister told me 6 days before Christmas that I was allowed to open the presents because I was so annoying as a kid. You know, I was like, "Oh, when's Christmas?" got to open the presents. So she's like, go ahead and open them. <laughs> and so I started opening my presents and I, I was stoked because I opened one of them and uh, it was this Peter Pan record. Can't remember like what it was. I had like, you know, Fisher Price turntable or something when I was three years old or whatever. And then my mom found out and she was real pissed and <laughs> we had to like wrap everything back up or whatever. But I think I got to like at least keep that Peter Pan record out of the bunch. And then, uh, you know, getting into music, my I'm the baby. My brother's 10 years older than me and my sister's five years older than me. So, of course, that it's, it's a really awesome thing to be exposed to a, a bunch of stuff besides the radio, which I'd listen to all the time. And I would annoy DJs calling them up to, for them to play uh, Mrs. Vanderbilt by 
Paul McCartney and Wings, <laughs> you know, like, yes. you know. But I remember like getting uh, <clears throat> my brother, and my sister each got like Band on the Run, and there goes Rhyme and Simon, the Paul Simon record, like in 1974. And uh, I got like a toy train, and I was stoked about that. But, but I listened to those records. I always listened to like side one, number side two, oldies but goodies records, volume one and three. You know, they had like uh, you know, uh, uh, Love Potion number nine, and they had like uh, oh god, what there was really like Surfing, wasn't it Surfing Safari? What was it? It was like all this 50s stuff, like uh, um, you know, Let the Good Times Roll and stuff like that. So. That's not how I wrote my first song, but it kind of just leads into it because ha having all these records in the house, I started to think one day, like during the summertime when I was totally bored, and this is, maybe I had video games, but you know, TV was like three channels, you know? So I'll, I decided I'm gonna go through every record in the house and I'd like listen to all my brother's records and my parents' records and my sister's records and I found John Coltrane. This is like when I was like 10 years old or something. Found John Coltrane and Ornette Coleman and Frank Zappa and I mean, you know, some some stuff that I was like, this is weird, and I put it aside. I, I didn't know what it was, shit. but yeah. But I, I, you know, I was I love disco too. We had the Saturday Night, Saturday Night Fever soundtrack, and we had, uh, you know, whatever was of the day. But I decided, like, oh man, I really want to write a song, but we didn't have a guitar around the house, or at least one that was actually functional. We had like kind of a museum piece that was my aunt's guitar from the '50s. It's this uh, Stella that actually. Years later, once I met Steve Hunter, who's a luthier here in Athens, um, I had him like totally take it apart and like rebuild it. And uh, now it plays great with this Martin bracing, but back then it was like an unplayable. I didn't know it at the time. Later I tried to play it and it was still unplayable and I was discouraged, <laughs> it set me back. But so roundabout, I didn't know, I didn't have an instrument in the house. So I, I had two turn, uh, two tape decks though. And I had like the turntable. So what I would do is I decided I was gonna write a song. I wrote the lyrics down for a song and I I've got all these records. I can look on the back and somebody like listen to the lyrics and I'm just gonna take snippets of each song to make the sentence. So I cobbled together a song that was like snippets of all these other little songs off the records just so I could get, you know, I want you. And then like another record to be in the back of my car, you know, like, but it would, you know, it could be like, it could be like Frank Zappa with McCartney, with Chick Corea, with, with George Benson, you know, and then it was just all strung together in this weird cut up fashion. And uh, it was not what I was hoping it was going to be, but it, it ended up being this weird kind of foray into like almost like music concrete that I knew nothing about. And it wasn't until years later that I, I was telling my friends about uh, about it that were kind of into like, you know, Pierre Henri and John Cage or, you know, whatever, uh, Stockhausen. And uh, I, I played them. I had this cassette still and I played them this thing. And they're just like, what the fuck? <laughs> you know, but that was my first song. I don't know. I can't, it, was, it was probably just some really stupid song. I can't remember what the lyrics were about. Um, but it was a real confuser when I played it, you know. It's like I don't even know what the chorus is because <laughs> it was just like some weird just hodgepodge of things strewn together. But, um, yeah, that was kind of the start. Um, and then it wasn't until uh, I had a thing. Well, this goes way back. I used to be a freaker. So that's like blue boxing and um, a bunch of stuff of like uh, hacking on, on telephone lines that kids probably still do today but it's, it's a thing that's a lot harder to do because of uh 
the systems are more sophisticated and they can track your shit down pretty pretty quick these days but i know people are still doing it but um back then in the 80s y'all um <laughs> you know i saw war games and all that and i thought oh shit i can do that had a commodore 64 and shit and uh, Commodore 64 was great because it has a really cool music chip in it. So another thing that kind of led me towards music was the Commodore 64 because, as you probably have heard of chip music, that all starts with, like, the Commodore 64. That's, like, the sound for the video games and all the stuff and uh, sequencers and stuff like that. The earliest um, kind of programmable, like, music sequencers were kind of on the Commodore 64. I mean, other people probably could argue that it was on, you know, Atari ST or whatever. But the Commodore 64, I mean, when you listen to uh, Van Halen's Jump, Eddie Van Halen, he programmed that on a Commodore 64. So when they played live, they didn't have a keyboard player. They had the Commodore 64 playing that bam, 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 bam. You know, so that was kind of yeah. like early MIDI setup and stuff like that. I didn't have MIDI, but I did have these uh, kind of like sequencer things where you'd enter hexadecimal numbers to, to make music with. I didn't quite understand it, but I kind of like got it going a little bit. Um, but this SID chip was cool. It had three voices on it, and uh, you could get a lot of sounds out of it. The thing with the blue box and how this ties in with this freaking is, is that because you can make any sound, um, telephone, uh, the way it works, you got your dial tone, you got uh, the numbers that you dial on the phone, right? They make, they make sounds. They make tones. Um, before that, it was rotary dial phones. Am I going too fast, y'all? Sorry. <laughs> um, <laughs> we've, we've gone down a rabbit hole, haven't we? So, uh, you know, each, the Commodore 64 could reproduce these tones that are, you know, for dialing numbers. But operators, hey, guess what? They have their own tones. They don't have your tones. They have their own special tones. So when you dial uh, any digit, say, like, 0 through 9, an operator has their own set of frequencies that do those digits. And there's also a sound called, people probably are, probably heard of this one, it's called 2600 hertz. And that's the most important tone for manipulating your phone because uh, you blow that down a line and it, and it gets the, uh, the other end of the line to respond to you. Like it thinks, it's, it's like, oh wait, hold on. You're saying something? I'm listening now. And uh, it's kind of how the system used to work for a period of time when it was all Ma Bell, before they broke up everything into different stuff, and way, well before like cell phones and stuff like that. It was just a series of tones. And so uh, back in the, so like Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak, before they did Apple, they were selling little boxes on the black market in like the Bay Area that would generate these tones that you could like take to a phone booth and blast into a, uh, a payphone and get free like uh free calls out of it because it would mimic they had what was called a red box a red box generates tones for dropping coins into a into a payphone so a quarter makes a sound and a nickel makes a sound and a dime makes a sound and back then making calls could be expensive right especially long distance used to cost money people don't re realize that long distance was like an expensive oh, thing yeah. that was a special deal you know you didn't call somebody on the other outside of your town because that was, oh, the time's ticking. You know, you're talking to grandma, and grandma knows that you got, like, five minutes to talk because this is costing, that might cost ten bucks to talk to her for five minutes. So, so anyway, this whole idea of, like, tones and stuff, I mean, it's complicated here, Johnny. The, ho the whole thing is that because of freaking, see if I can speed this up for you, because of freaking, using these tones, 
I found out about a whole nother world outside of computers and everything like that because of the the freaking thing is that you're finding because I'm I'm hacking to get like free phone number uh, free long distance basically that's the start and then you start to explore the computers generating these tones for me by the way that's what I'm trying to say so once I learned to explore like the phone network and you meet other freakers and there's clandestine message boards and stuff you become a part of and you maybe you start your own and you have friends all over the country and stuff like that. Freaky Floyd, this friend of mine, he was in uh, Buffalo. This guy named The Dak, he was in uh, San Francisco. He turned me on to Dead Kennedys. He had a thing called Holiday in Cambodia. It was the name of his site. And we used to talk all the time. And uh, he was older. I was like, you know, I'm like 14, 15 years old, but he's like 21 living in the Bay Area. So he told me about the Dead Kennedys and that's my first punk rock record I picked that up, changed my life, you know. Um, that all happened through freaking. That all happened through learning that connection and stuff. Um, also through that connection, I learned about blind kids were kind of the first uh, freakers. Some of them were. There's a very famous story, I think it was in Esquire magazine, about this blind kid um, from Tennessee. When he was like nine years old, he was bored. He was like a real poor black kid. And uh, he used to hang around all day. He's like not in school, something's, you know, he's just at home. And so he's just looking for something to do. So he picks up the phone and he just happened to be whistling while near the phone. And he happened to trigger this event with 2600 hertz because he happened to blow 2600 hertz whistling just by accident and he noticed something happened. So he's got nothing but time and he just starts whistling and whistling, whistling until he gets it to do other things. By whistling, he figured out how to crack the code and be an operator and take over stuff and explore. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so there's lots of stories like this. These are pretty famous stories in the, in the freaker, you know, lore. You know, there's the Captain Crunch whistle, which is which is a whole another thing. A free whistle that came in the box of Captain Crunch as a toy, and this uh, guy who was in the army, uh, like stationed in like Korea or something like that, you know, got some Captain Crunch and <laughs> had this whistle, but and happened to luckily blow it near a phone, and discovered that it blew 2,600 hertz exactly. So this Captain Crunch whistle, I don't know if there's probably some other people who figured it out too, but this one guy, he went by Captain Crunch after that. That was his moniker. But he um, he's one of these guys too. Anyway, back to blind people. So this kid's a freaker. And that's kind of a weird thing is that I also learned about this other thing. Uh, you'd always try to find numbers that were interesting. You'd talk to other people. They'd be like, I'll call this number. does this weird thing or call this number, you can do this and this and this and this. You're just look, always looking for tricks, you know. There's some lines that you knew that you could listen in on phone conversations or you could do, I don't know, you could do lots of stuff. Uh, but it's like a lot of exploring. But I found about these numbers that uh, were for kind of like, it was like a party line. It was weird. They were set up by libraries uh, uh, initially for blind people to have social interaction. So like it started, I think, in Philadelphia. I don't know what the year was, but what they would do. So blind people, you know, they had a, you know, how are they going to like socialize? They needed a network, uh, some sort of medium. This is before the Internet, right? There was maybe CompuServe, which was around, which was like an early thing, that a PC kind of like Internet type thing before Prodigy and all this stuff. But so people they set it up, somehow these librarians figured out that they could set up like an answering machine 
and people could call this answering machine and leave a message about what they wanted to talk about. And then they would compile these messages, have another line that you called to where you could listen to a compiled um, tape of all these messages that people left. And then people could comment on what they heard on that compilation tape on that. And then you had a dialogue going on. So, and it was a way for blind people to, to connect, right? And uh, so that idea spread to a couple of other libraries throughout the country, thought, hey, this is a good thing we can do for, for blind people. Through my freaking, I found these numbers in LA. And these people in LA had figured out to make it more mainstream. So it wasn't just for blind people, it was for fucking like valley hipster kids going to shows, going to punk rock shows, going to see shit. And they had like done a whole thing kind of like getting their weird valley scene on one of these party line things. And I called and checked it out and it blew my mind. Cause I used to uh, run my own bulletin board system, BBS for like freakers and stuff like that. But it was all dudes, you know, like there was no, no, no girls in this scene, you know? And uh, when I was listening to these party lines in uh, California, I heard girls on this stuff. I heard Valley girls going like, oh, I saw Bob 213. He was at the, you know, the fucking weirdo show. And he's just a fucking creep, you know? I mean, I, he just fucking stay away from me. You know, like, gag me with a spoon. They really would use, like, gag me with a spoon and shit like that. But, like, a lot of Valley speak, you know? And you, so you'd had all this shit, you know, you had prank call lines, all this other stuff. So I was like, man, I'm going to start my own line. And so I was living in Charlotte, North Carolina at the time. I was a big geek, had big thick glasses. I was like a fucking revenge of the nerd, had no friends, acne. I was like 5'10", weighed 125 pounds. And uh, just totally uh, having a weird time in high school. And uh, my whole social network is kind of like, I was like a predecessor of the, uh, the awkward social nerd who could only exist in a in a realm outside of like seeing somebody in person because i was had totally no self-confidence and uh was just i was like on the lowest rung of the totem pole you know at school paranoid someone was laughing at me from ac across the the quad <laughs> you know what i mean and total loser speak but uh so anyway i started one of these lines when i lived in charlotte and to do that, I had to figure out what equipment these people used. This is a long way. This is a roundabout story about why I started playing music. No, I love it. But it's, I had to buy, I figured out what they had was, was a four track machine. Because you had to have a way to take like whatever compilation calls they were doing. Maybe like, I'm like being like DJ, you know, like I'm commenting every now and then. I'm flow it, flowing in music in between the calls or something like that, just a little bit, you know. And I needed a way to mix all these things together. So I found out there was this thing called a four track, which was like, a I got like a Tascam, but you know, Fostex made it. There's some other people that made four tracks back then. And it was kind of like, you know, revolutionary first home recording thing that you could buy for a few hundred bucks and get some ideas down. And it was the whole starting of like the lo-fi, you know, tape rev revolution that happened back in the eighties. You know, people like uh, Martin Newell, from like cleaners from Venus and stuff like that. He kind of like, you can go back and find the people that were doing it back in the day or even like uh, R. Stevie Moore or something like that. So anyway, back in the eighties, I bought this four track, but I didn't buy it for music. I bought it to do this like party line, <laughs> you know? 
but I started to uh, finally meet some people that played music. And I was like, you know, we got this four track. Let's just do something. And so not even knowing how to play a guitar or anything, I started to have friends of mine over who had a guitar. And then they had extra guitars. So then I started having a guitar. But that wasn't until I was like 17 or 18 years old. I, re I regret not getting it sooner. I always wanted it sooner, but I just didn't. You know, it's one of those things you just don't believe that you can do it. Or that first shitty Stella guitar that I had in the house, I tried to play that when I was in ninth grade, and it was just impossible. <laughs> you know, it was just like, it just wasn't playable. It wasn't Action even tunable. It was like I, the screws on the back where the tuning pegs were were like stripped. And so every time you tried to tune it, the tension would change, and then like the peg would move. It wasn't even tunable. And uh, like I, I got a pick, but it wasn't a guitar pick. It was like a, like auto harp pick or something crap. So anyway, it is what it is. So started playing guitar when I was about eighteen, and that's my first rudimentary, <laughs> is that a word? Kind of like sketches happened around that time using that four track. So that's the that's the fucking nugget, Johnny. <laughs> <laughs> Well, th I mean, did you take right to it? Did you take right to the guitar? Oh, I sucked for years, man. I still suck. Uh, it took a long time. I mean, I mean, I was just trying to get something out of it. I mean, I got a song called On the Beach or whatever. And it's me just like not even playing notes. I'm just like percussively. I'm like, you know, I've got like the strings m totally muted and then just kind of like scraping on the strings like you know whatever on it and uh and then you know had some stupid ass thing i said over the top of it you know so but that was all i could do i mean i was like sitting there like okay i can't play <laughs> it's fucking suck probably still can't even fucking tune the fucking guitar you know um so you know you gotta go through a period of time of uh trying to figure shit out and I did, and then I f started playing in bands where we all sucked, and uh, this we kind of we, we no, this was in Columbus, Georgia. By the time I started playing in bands, so Columbus, Georgia is like second biggest city in in Georgia, but it's it's really like it was once called like the biggest small town in America. It means well, you know what I mean? <laughs> it does. I mean, it's 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 you know, it's not unlike any other kind of like medium sized southern town. Um, it's kind of cut off from everything, like. Uh, there were for the longest time there was like no main interstate or anything. There's actually an interstate like little extension that comes off of I-85 called 185. It takes you to Columbus, but it doesn't go anywhere else. It just dead ends. That was Jimmy Carter's gift to Columbus, Georgia. He <laughs> promised us that. He delivered, man. Um, so it's it's kind of like not on the way to anywhere. It's a military base there. Fort Benning's there. It's like really huge the, where the Rangers are. And uh, the first guys that get shot out of the planes as they're jumping off and stuff like that. So my friends and I, when I finally found like my my people, so to speak, when I was basically it was my senior year, I moved back to Columbus and I was failing out, out of everything because <laughs> uh, I just didn't give a shit about it, anything. I was pretty fucking uh, weirdly dissociated from from everything and just just weird. And I wrote some sh real shitty, depressing poetry. And my my creative writing teacher told the principal or whatever, I thought I was going to kill myself, which I don't know if I would have, but it, I definitely needed help. So it was good. It's got therapy, dropped out of school. Because <laughs> uh, my therapist said, don't make, don't make Brian do anything he doesn't want to do. 
Uh, Monday morning rolls around. My my mom tells me I don't have to go to school if I don't want to. I was like, well, I'm not going. Yeah, <laughs> but no next next the the next day, was like, I'm not going. It was like it was like the next week. No, I still don't want to go. So it wasn't really planned. It was just kind of like a weird. Just never went back. Um, but it was the best thing that could ever happen to me. Got my GED. It was all right. Uh, yeah. So but hung out at Denny's. That's where the weirdos hung out. Hell yeah. So I finally. Uh, had you know met girls and other people that you know were in the same stuff I was into kind of so formed our first bands out of that we played like seven seconds and Hooskadoo and uh we played like Joy Division and we tried to write our own songs you know and we kind of sucked but you know it was fun now this whole time what what shows are you going to that really are kind of blowing your mind you know, I know you mentioned you'd come into Atlanta for, for shows. Uh, what, what things are you seeing at the time that's making you think, man, I wanna, I wanna do this or at least explore this further? Uh, you know, what's funny is the first show I think I ever saw was like when I was still living in Charlotte and I was like a freshman and there was like the one band at our high school and, oh God, what were they called? They were like, oh, the Winkerman, <laughs> the Winkerman. <laughs> And they were like a little bit older. I remember one of them like giving me some props because I was like reading like Musician Magazine or something, you know, in like <laughs> Spanish class or something, which is like whatever. But I was, you know, I was happy someone fucking talked to me because like I said, I was a fucking dweeb. I was on, I'm on my, I was, you know, below the fucking toilet, you know. And um, so anyway, we played, we had some fucking uh, pep rally or something and the Winkerman played like, like uh, the Take the Skinheads Bowling by Camper Van Beethoven. I didn't know what, the, well, I kind of knew what that song was, I guess, from MTV or something. But they played that, and they played uh, Sweet Hitchhiker by CCR. Oh, they played Good Golly. No, wait, they did play Good Golly Miss Molly because we had this really hot, young chemistry teacher. Her name was Molly. And, uh, <laughs> of course, we all lusted after her. She ran, like, triathlons and stuff. She was super fit. She was, like, just gorgeous. And she was, like, 25 or something. But uh, they played uh, Good Golly, Miss Molly, and they were good, you know? And uh, I was like, wow, these guys are doing it. I was really impressed. And then uh, when I moved, I mean, I saw like a couple of things when I was in uh, Charlotte. I, I went to like uh, the New York City Fresh Fest, which was the first show I ever went to. Uh, and so that was Run DMC and Houdini and the Fat Boys and Grandmaster Flash and uh, Curtis Blow was supposed to play, but he didn't show oh, for some man. reason. I was a big Curtis Blow fan. I, I have a like cross current, like rap was kind of like really important to me. Uh, when I heard like the message by uh, Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five, that was, you know, I wanted something that meant something. It's before I found punk rock. So then when I found the Dead Kennedys and uh, then kind of went into that hole of just going to the record store, skipping school and uh, just buying records with my lunch money, uh, upon, you know, GBH or, <laughs> You know, whatever, you know, Black Flag, of course. And, yeah, I, basically like an SST. I found a Maximum Rock and Roll. I'd look in there and, and see, like, you know, what was like, uh, you know, looks interesting, I guess. And order records, mail order records and that kind of thing. So I was doing some of that. Um, and so, yeah, I think uh, like a formative shows. The one gig I wish I'd gone to was uh, there was a Gigi Allen show. Um, oh and, they had, and they had like at the record store, they had like... Uh, you know, all the kind of like little postings about how he's throwing feces and 
getting banned from everywhere and all this shit. And it was like at a DIY place called uh, the Church of Human Awareness or something. But I didn't have any friends. I haven't I had nobody to go to to this show. I might not, you know. So like, I I I wasn't gonna go because I was just like, I don't know. I hadn't been to a show. I needed some fucking courage. I mean, there's other places there that I eventually years la- later played called the Milestone. The Milestone used to have all the good punk rock stuff and and definitely um, bands like the Anti Scene. Anti Scene's kind of related to uh, Gigi Allen. They they kind of like were his backing band or band or whatever. I think for a little while and the anti-scene was kind of like more in that just like uh decrepit uh gross punk rock you know self-mutilating yes. kind of style a bit you know no one could do it like Gigi though you know i i figure like Gigi, you know he did it he's kind of like jesus because you can't out Gigi, Gigi. you know what i'm saying right. i mean people can mutilate themselves and like do fucking plastic surgery like uh pure genesis you know i mean i mean they went somewhere crazy but um gg as far as being foul and disgusting and you know like you know do you need to try to do it because are you going to really outdo gg i mean he kind of did it first and no one's done it as far as he did i mean you can look at uh you know iggy you know slashing himself and stuff like that and that was pretty hardcore right but um yeah, I think I think Gigi did that, so no one else really has to. <laughs> right, right. I mean, there's a lot of self-loathing out there. I'm not one of them, you know. And I get it, you know. And I, you know, there's a uh, there's something to that, you know. It's dark. It's it's a where it's a place to go. Don't stay there too long. You don't have to. Right. It's funny. A lot of my friends. Uh, I think I was talking about. You know, I lived with Jucifer for a number of years, and they're really close friends, even though I haven't talked to him in for fucking forever. You should get Juice Fair on the show. I think we've talked about we this. Well, definitely. And they, and they got a million fucking stories. Um, talk about Russia. They've been there many times, deep. Um, they've been to Omsk. <laughs> they've been to Chelyabinsk. They've been there. They've been. They've done it. So, um, yeah. Uh, whew, sidetracked on why I brought up Juice Fair, but um, Gigi Allen, whatever. Uh, Making um. You're talking about uh, some of the shows you were seeing. Oh, uh, the shows, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Uh, so anyway, that was a show I didn't go to. <laughs> but uh, by the time I got to Columbus, it was close enough to Atlanta where we come, we go up to like the Metroplex and see stuff. So I saw Butthole Surfers, saw Sonic Youth. Sonic, Youth, I mean, both those shows, of course, were amazing. Uh, it was like 1987, 88 when I was going up there to the Metroplex and stuff like that. Um, saw Fishbone there. It's probably the best show I've ever fucking seen was Fishbone. Uh, we were up in the balcony and it was just, I don't know. It was just electric, you know, just like the place exploded once they hit the stage and stuff like that. And it was, you know, people might be down on like, uh, kind of like, <laughs> kind of ska, ska funk metal or whatever. It kind of like started a bad trend in a way. Yeah, not I not, love to, not, not, not to diss all those bands like 24-7 Spies and stuff like that because they, they were fine. They were great live. I, I, no, I don't. I mean, I like 24-7 Spies, but there was a band here called Follow For Now. They were like an Atlanta band. They used to play the Rockfish Palace here in Athens. They were kind of like uh, this band that we expected big things out of. 
and then they recorded their their first full-length record and it was just like what's this right. <laughs> you know a lot of that energy got taken out of it it's not a bad record but um anyway yeah went up to the metroplex all shows uh go up to see the center stage to see like bigger stuff uh you know so that was kind of the first thing but it's really the, the playing in your own bands and and figuring out our own shitty shows at like uh rec centers and uh once you see other your friends bands playing then you get inspired you know and so that was kind of like we uh used to rent out the uh the elks lodge so uh we could rent the elks lodge out for like 75 bucks and we string all these uh you know folding tables together to make a stage with like bungee cables and stuff like that there was a band called uh violet voodoo <laughs> that uh came up from florida from tampa i guess but some of them had columbus connections and they were just kind of going there to like figure out their next move and make some money because i guess there was like a free house to live in or something they ended up moving out to austin and they're still good friends of mine or at least two of them are and uh we used to do good shows at the elks lodge and stuff like that and then uh then eventually i moved up to athens and then finally got the courage and to start bands shitty bands up here <laughs> now the first first band you had up here was with uh andrew right? yeah we were called spawn spawn yeah. was kind of like andrew uh, rieger andrew from elf power yes. andrew rieger uh i've known andrew probably since 1990 or something like that when he was like a freshman living in creswell hall i, I took his drunk ass home from like a dinosaur junior concert or something like that one time from the 40 watt dropped him off it was just like some guy i'd see you know it, any small scene or whatever you go to a bunch of shows and you, you might not know the person but you like you recognize that guy he's like oh who's that guy and back then andrew had like really long hair and he looked like you know he was kind of like like a like a rocker dude and uh so later on my friend Raphael wanted to start a band Raphael's like really crazy well crazy he would uh not be happy necessarily to say that Raphael was like totally wild and interesting and free and uh really into Prince which I was still am and uh he's uh just really flamboyant he wanted to be the lead singer and a perfect lead singer um dressing like weird lingerie and hump the stage and and then scream like a fucking banshee and uh and Raphael put the band together and I show up and uh I'm supposed to be playing bass Andrew's there uh uh this guy named Raleigh's there and he's playing bass and I was kind of confused I was like well I thought I was playing bass so we ended up both playing bass <laughs> uh you know and uh raleigh had this uh kind of like a fake steinberger bass it was like a knockoff we called it the toothpick and uh so i kind of played like the low chunky stuff and he would play like the high bits on on the toothpick and uh we had this you know we were kind of like second third tier uh acid sludge band you know did you get on any bills uh, well, the first gig that was like, well, we played like some, some like DIY type venues, but the uh, play Club Fred and we played a uh, bunch of Freddy Torontos that underneath of uh, this pizza place in town is called Club Fred. And a bunch of bands used to play there. It's kind of like the they'd book everybody. Um, 
and uh so anyway we finally got a like a gig playing with porn orchard at the 40 watt on a saturday and that was like porn orchard was one of the bigger bands on the scene and we totally like we're like kind of like in awe of them a little bit you know them and like jacko nuts and uh you know uh i guess even yeah mercy land uh i'm a big mercy land fan so anyway we got to open for porn orchard and i thought i could fucking die and pl- fucking play the fucking 40 watt man i'm 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 done did it fucking did it it was like there's fucking 11 people there fucking did it you know so that was like a you know that was a big big one for sure what you got johnny so then you guys so i mean coming from that how does that lead you to uh to playing with um elf power well you know spawn kind of slogged it out and we recorded some stuff with david barbie over this place called Sweet 16, which is a studio Kelly Noonan had out of her house. And uh, David was just trying to get like whatever gigs he could. He was kind of had been sleeping under this guy, John Keane's desk, desk, like mixing desk, trying to like apprentice and learn his way. And then he bought um, like some portable gear. And so he was, he was hustling just to record anybody. So he gave us a deal. Kelly gave us a deal. We did some songs turned out actually okay um but at the same time uh i was i don't know there was some stuff that i was just like kind of like eh about uh dynamic wise and uh started playing with this this other band that was like more like influenced by like throwing muses big throwing muses fan especially the early records that first throwing muses record it's really fucking good it's kind of dark it's a I don't know. Hate my way. It's a fucking classic. Right. So anyway, I was in this band, started doing that. Kind of like you kind of like grow when you start playing with other people. And so that was kind of like a growth band for me. And we were really dedicated for a while. And for a while I was doing both bands, but then I was like, eh, I'm going to go this way and play with Basement Saint, which was that band and left Spawn. And they can kind of continued on for another year. And they recorded this actually at this cool, maybe like four songs at Elixir after I left. And uh, it's, got, it's better than the shit they recorded when I was in the band. But they kind of imploded. Uh, and Raphael and Ginger, our drummer, um, eventually like moved out to the Bay Area. And uh, Andrew and I stayed in touch. And he was living with my friend Davey Rathgaber and living with Raleigh, you know, bass player from Spawn. And Raleigh had a four track. And so they started four tracking and goofing around as like a house thing. And they, they named that Elf Power. And they put out, Raleigh put out a couple of cassettes that he kind of cobbled together of like comp, compilation of their kind of stoner etchings, <laughs> late night and stuff. But through that, Andrew figured out that he could write songs and that he could sing songs. He had never tried to sing before. So Andrew wrote this song called Temporary Arm. And, uh, he played it for me and went over. He's like, checked out the song I did. And he played it for me. And I was like, holy shit, this is a fucking hit. This is a fucking hit. He'd been listening to a lot of T-Rex and stuff like that. And all of a sudden it was just like, wow. I said, I'll do anything. I'll I'll play whatever you want. Let's get a band together. And he'd you know, already been kind of like getting some stuff going on before I, I said that. But he was like, yeah, 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 yeah. So... They had a couple of people that were kind of filling in on drums who were like actually good. I never played drums, but 
the other guy went and golf got a gig with all good music company <laughs> this kind of like second rate uh jam band in athens that was pretty big at the time and so uh their drummer went off to do this gig and so i played drums for elf power initially and we played like some house parties and stuff and then uh then eventually uh that drummer came back and then uh i started playing guitar and then uh we started uh i don't know we had some new songs and stuff like that but then andrew and laura decided to move to new york laura carter andrew rieger laura um was andrew's girlfriend that was funny because i didn't know they were boyfriend and girlfriend even though it should have been so fucking obvious <laughs> i had a big crush on laura and was like just was just like flabbergasted when i found out she was with andrew and I, afterward i was like what were they thinking of course they were together like what was, what was <laughs> they? i just never seen andrew have a girlfriend so i just didn't think he had a girlfriend you know it just didn't occur to me but i, I was like oh okay yeah 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 so anyway Laura has a brother, older brother Steve, lives in New York. He's got a place he had just bought. There's re rebuilding stuff, and but they could stay there. And initially, I was going to go to New York with them, but then I got cold feet because Laura, at the last thing I said, you can't stay with us. It's like, oh shit, damn it, I can't go. I'll be fucked. I have, I have a uh, mental issues. <laughs> 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 it might be not to be the best deal for me. But they went up there and it was only like for like a year, a year and a half. And then I went up to visit them and my sister lived up there and I saw a guy by voices up there for, for the first time. That was a stellar show. Um, and then we practiced a little bit and we did a tour back to, to Athens for fun. And then they had such a good time on that tour. They decided, you know, what the fuck, let's just move back to Athens and get the band going in Athens with Brian. So that's what they did while also breaking up at the same time. They're still like the closest to friends, like in a, like a really special relationship that Laura and Andrew have. And they have a record label called Orange Twin Records. You should check out, they put a lot of awesome shit. Oh, and yeah. it's also um, uh, a land converse, uh, com <laughs> conservation project called Orange Twin. And there's a big amphitheater out there. And when possible, uh, they have cool shows over there. Jan Deck played there. If you don't know who fucking Jandek is, you should check that shit out. So that, but Jandek played there. Will Oldham's played there. Um, we did a bunch of Elephant Six bands played there once with Neutral when Neutral Mo Hotel got back together. Like we all played out there. Um, Olivia Sherman Control played out there. Um, anyway, it's a cool place. So Laura and Andrew, that's their baby. They've done a lot. Um, so anyway, we got the band back together. We came back to Athens. I lived with Laura for a while and we started recording a record and that and then eventually we added uh this guy Aaron Wagland on drums and uh we made this record called When the Red King Comes and that's kind of like the first thing I've ever made that I was like proud of, you know. That's a great record. Yeah. I just remixed it. Um there's going to be a a special version my remix with Jason, my friend Jason Neesmith helped me. And it's gonna come out sometime, <laughs> probably next year. Depends on the on the vinyl stuff. I have to like I'm redoing the artwork, so I have to get that done. But it's all mastered and everything, and seems to be good. Might be sacrilegious, but you know, <laughs> I think uh, I think it sounds good. So, so anyway, that's how Andrew and Laura and I got Elf Power kind of going once we got back to Athens, and it's still going. Yeah, yeah. 
Well, you mentioned Elephant Six during that time. How would you, for an outsider from Athens, describe that whole scene? So uh, I guess I'm a part of this thing called the Elephant Six Collective, Recording Collective. Um, it was actually started by these kids in Ruston, Louisiana. So uh, back in Ruston at high school, um, this guy named Will Hart, Jeff Mangum, Robert Schneider, Bill Doss, Scott Spillane, uh, Will Westbrook, uh, John Dazzo, Lucy Calhoun, Beth Sale. Um, there's more people, but John Fernandez, um, a whole crew of people from Ruston who started bands in their high school and junior high and stuff like that. And they had a, like a local university that was nearby them and it had a college radio station that was kind of like half-assed a little bit, but they did play cool stuff sometimes. And the, my friends, when they were in high school, used to go hang out at the college radio station and they just let them DJ. <laughs> like they didn't care that they weren't students. They were like, yeah, sure, DJ. And so they had access to all these records that it, they had stockpiled. I mean, this, this radio station had been a, around for quite a while, so it had cool records in the stacks. And so they were exploring and pulling out all these records. And so they found out about Music Concrete. They found out about like way out jazz stuff. They found punk rock stuff. They found all sorts of stuff. And it all became kind of like a hodgepodge melting pot of influences that influenced them and kind of like what they were doing, you know? And uh, after high school there, they were like, well shit, we're not fucking staying in Ruston. There's nothing fucking here. So small contingent Robert Schneider being the one moved to Denver because his family moved to Denver. And once Robert got there, he kind of started the Apples and Stereo and uh, a bunch of other bands kind of like, kind of popped up around this kind of like anchor of psych pop there being like the Minders and Jesse Bessie and Von Hemling and uh, he's kind of the weirdest, one of the weirdest guys actually in uh, Elephant Six, Von Hemling. Um, and uh, maybe like Vince Mole, I think is from there. But the other collection, people I met, moved here. And that's like Neutral Milk Hotel, the Olivia Tremor Control, the Gerbils, um, and, you know, some other people that, that kind of like came. You know, there was like, it was kind of like a search, not search, like a, what do you call this? Like when you're out west, you know, like a, a search party. It's a, you know, when you're just explore, exploring. So they would go try stuff out. So they'd stay, ah, we, they went to Athens for a bit. They went to Denver for a bit. They went to Seattle for a bit. And they were like, you know what? Athens was cool. Let's go back there. So they kind of like really stuck around here and like maybe like 92, 93. And uh, they formed a band called Synthetic Flying Machine, which was Jeff and Will and Bill and some other people. And uh, so we are, when Spawn was around, we kind of met this band, Synthetic Flying Machine. And uh, then afterwards, we just kind of started interacting more and more with them, Andrew and I and Laura. And they liked Elf Power, and we played gigs with them. And then the liver Trimmer Control started after the ashes of Synthetic Flying Machine, and Jeff just wanted to do his thing. He kind of wandered off for a while before he came back to Athens. 
And so we got to be kind of good buddies with them. And uh, so that kind of like got elf power in the Elephant Six orbit. Even though we weren't from Rustin, they were like, Will was like, yeah, you're Elephant Six. We're like, oh, that's your thing. It's like, no, no, no. I mean, you could, we're on the same wavelength. So when we started to put out records, Will had drawn up this logo when he was in high school, actually maybe in eighth grade. And they used to put it on all their like homemade cassettes. They'd go to school on a Monday and be like, here's my new fucking record. And, you know, drawing the artwork one of a kind and put a logo on the back, you know. And um, back in the days of Xerox machines. So all those copy machines making the cool art. I'm, I'm wondering if my friend Sean McDevitt has one of those. We used to see each other at Kinko's doing flyers and stuff. Certain machines got certain qualities. That's the lost art. So, uh, but anyway, we made friends with them. And uh, then I started playing, when Andrew and Laura went to New York, I actually started playing with the Olivia Trim Control because they needed somebody to play keyboard because their uh, guy Pete, Pete Urchik was in New York and he was like, or actually in Jersey, <laughs> Jersey City, was talking about coming down, but he was, yeah, am I gonna come down? Am I not gonna come down? He was trying to get his shit together, I guess. So if he hadn't come down, maybe I would have stayed playing keyboards even though I suck. And Peter is like uh, literally probably 127 times better than I am. Um, but it was fun and I did that for a while and that was exciting. And that's where I really caught like this utopian vibe from them. Andrew and I, and I guess Laura too, uh, we were just like in awe of it because they made records that sounded cool that on their four track, you know what I'm saying? It always goes back to the four track. You don't need to go in a fucking studio to make your shit. You know what you want it to sound like. The problem in Athens is that we had places like John Keene's studio or whatever. It's like where R.E.M. would go to record demos and stuff or we had Mark Maxwell's place or, you know, it's a couple of other places. But these guys didn't have any fucking clue what we wanted to sound like. They're trying to get some kind of clean sound out of a Roland JC, you know, 100 app or whatever. And uh, you would, you'd save up all your fucking money and go record and it wasn't how you wanted the sound. It wasn't until Andy Baker came to town or at least somebody, well, David did, you know, did some stuff. But like, I was always jealous of other scenes because their records sounded better than ours. Uh, there were some great bands here that I thought like never got properly documented you know what i mean oh and there wasn't like a, a record label here either you know you look at dc or something like they had like uh you know discord and they had teen beat you know and those were cool labels and they had like a cool style they had a cool eclectic you know types of bands you know teen beat definitely uh so it's like why didn't athens have that so the four track thing once we realized that with like the olivia's doing four track stuff sounded good you could make it all happen you know what i mean yeah so we started four tracking cassette eight tracking and uh just started just doing the work you know uh did you guys tour a lot or was this mostly just shows you were playing here and well we started off here playing gigs but we were lucky because bands like the olivia trim control and then neutral hotel they got record they went up to like well olivia's went up to cmj and got signed, whatever, you know, something that, you know, doesn't, I mean, you know, back then, you know, it was like, everybody's hoping 
quote unquote, I'm going to get fucking signed, get some fucking money. It's like a dream, yeah. Yeah, I mean, not, I mean, of course, selling out was a big concern. We didn't want to sell out, but it'd be nice to be on a small label that could put your shit out. And so they got on a label called Fly Daddy, and they, uh, they with Robert Schneider's help in Denver, they uh, made this record called Dusk at Cubist Castle, which is fucking fantastic. And uh, people gave a shit. And so they started touring. They had a booking agent. Then Nutramook Hotel, same deal. Um, put out like, well, put out the second record. Jeff put out his first record on Merch, which was a great record uh, on Avery Island. It's fucking amazing. But his second record, of course, blew up. I mean, it goes without saying, in the airplane over the sea. So Laura and Jeff from Neutral Milk dated. We'd all lived together. So it was me, Laura, Jeff Mangum, Julian Coster, Robbie Cucciaro. We all lived in this house on Grady Avenue. Once uh, Laura and Andrew came back to town, Laura and I kind of like quickly moved out of the Olivia's old house and moved into this other house. And so that we lived, I lived there for about three years. So that was kind of like the height of like the shit happening. So like I said, it was like this vibe of just like utopian. We just thought anything could happen, you know? It just felt like, you just kind of just felt it. We had these great potluck dinners. That was kind of like the, the community thing. We'd all get together for potluck dinners and uh why i kind of became a vegetarian later on because most people other people were vegetarian so uh there's this girl named laura now goes by the name of lulu uh laura dated will and she was a great cook and she was like just a gung-ho person that was kind of like getting stuff going actually i met laura before i met will i met laura i think we were talking the other day johnny about me getting good at photoshop it's because i used to go to the art lab at the university back in the mid nineties cause they had Macs with Photoshop and scanners and stuff. And that's where I'd go scan on like XTC photos out of trouser press <laughs> yeah. or something and uh, put it on some early internet archive of stuff. But Laura would be there doing stuff and we'd hang out. She'd probably get me stoned <laughs> and then uh, hang out with Will. She's like, Oh, there's going to be an eclipse tonight. You should come over, you know? But Laura was great, so she made all this great food for these potlucks, and other people, of course, bring stuff. And it was a great place for us, like every Sunday for like quite a while. Like it was all the Elephant Six family, all the bands coming together on Sundays and hanging out, and you know, smoking, hanging out, playing music, listening to music, um, just just spouting shit, getting ideas, and throwing it, you know, just inspiring one another. Um, so there's a really, really great sense of community that we felt in the late 90s and stuff before everything kind of splintered off in a weird way. Um, but of course, they're all like super close to me still, you know. Right. Well, how does this lead to you uh, playing with of Montreal? Well, met Kevin Barnes, Narns, um, around the same time. I met Kevin like, I don't know. 1995, 96, had a mutual friend of mine uh, who was from DC area and she knew this guy named Derek who was playing with Kevin and they needed somebody else and she's, this girl, uh, she used to uh, 
God. She's playing a band called Spackle. They moved from uh, D.C. down here. Three uh, three piece uh, all girl band, kind of kind of punk rock. And uh, so I would I would hang out with uh, Spackle a bunch. And uh, but Allison was friends with Derek, and she knew that I was kind of like into like psych pop and stuff like that. So she's like, I think you get along with these guys. She she should. Uh, you mind if I give them your number? And the next time I saw her, she had a cassette that Kevin had given her. Five songs had his number on there. I listened to it and, you know, it sounded a little twee, <laughs> but I thought it was cool. And so I reached out and uh, started playing with Kevin and Derek. So kind of concurrently with like when the Red King Comes was being made in like 96 with, with Elf Power, I was also practicing and getting stuff together with, with Kevin and Derek in the first version of, of Montreal. So first, and then Kevin already had a record deal Kevin had already bounced around too. He had, he had moved to Athens briefly in the early 90s. I didn't meet, see him then, but supposedly he was here and lived with like some of the other E6 people. He knew he knew Julian, and uh, but he bounced around. He went to Minneapolis for a while because he's a big Prince fan, and also the replacements and stuff like that, but that didn't work out. He had this like dead weight of a partner. <laughs> this guy named Jordan is like an infamous, uh, I don't forget his last name. He was supposed to be like the lead singer. They were going to be like, Simon and Garfunkel or some shit type, not sounding like them, but that premise where right. like, you know, Kevin's writing the songs, but supposedly he can't sing. So this other guy, Jordan, supposedly can sing and he's going to be the voice while Kevin writes all the, the songs and stuff. But this guy, uh, Jordan was just like a fucking sour, you know, piece of shit and uh, just was complaining the whole time. And it's like, I don't like it here. So Kevin's like, well, let's go somewhere else, you know, so uh, Kevin finally ditched him and came back to Athens and we started of Montreal. And Kevin had all these songs already and he'd already been signed to Bar None, which is like a They Might Be Giants label. Big They Might Be Giants fan. And so, of course, I knew about Bar None and I was like, whoa, this guy is for real. He's got a fucking deal already and shit. Um, anyway, Kevin has always had songs and he already had like, I don't know. He already had a hundred songs written. Gave me like back-to-back tapes full of songs that he had done on his four track over the years. Just an endless amount. So we started working those up and uh, we actually had a bass player for the, I was playing guitar at first and uh, we had this bass player named Joel Evans. This is like infamous, another infamous legend, Joel Evans. Uh, Joel's from Ruston and he played at one point in the Apples and Stereo uh, I think he played in Chocolate USA, which was his band that Julian Coster had, which was kind of predecessor, was also like a key band before the Liver Trauma Control in Nutrimoke Hotel, Chocolate USA. And Joel played in uh, played in Great Lakes, which is another Elephant Six band. So anyway, he was playing bass in Of Montreal, and we were practicing, you know. We had a gig. I got us a gig opening for Elf Power for our first gig at the 40 Watt. And uh, a week before our first gig, like, Joel's just MIA. He's not responding to, like, Kevin's, like, messages. He's, like, just con- he's ghosted us the week before the gig. Oh and it's just like, God damn you, man. So after two times of him not showing up to practice, and we had, like, two days before the gig, we are kind of like, well, Brian, can you play bass? I was like, I guess so. I mean, I kind of know how to play the songs on guitar. I should maybe figure out the bass. So I had like crib notes so I could play the gig 
and uh we played that gig and that was it's really awesome i recorded on eight track and i actually uh well i won't say it was me <laughs> but somebody put it up on the on the youtube and uh it's great it's charming it's it's really it's kind of my favorite part of the band i listened to that and whatever else got complicated down the line I don't hear that anymore. When I hear like this first show that we did, it's just so pure that uh, I can remember when it just felt great and fresh and we were just best buds and uh, how exciting that was. It's still there. It's amazing that that recording can do that for me. Um, so, but anyway, yeah, I played with Kevin and Derek, um, but I was always pl also playing in Elf Power and it's kind of hard to start juggling both bands and then both bands were touring. So uh, kind of push came to shove and I had to choose one band, but I chose Elf Power because I actually had more of a creative input. I could write songs, even though I didn't write many songs for Elf Power. And uh, I could play bass in the band, but I could play guitar on a record if I want. I could do anything I wanted to if I really wanted to. And uh, uh, Montreal was definitely Kevin's thing. So, um, yeah, I left, but then I came back later. So, just kind of like how things wind up, you know. Well, what are what are some of the highs of of when you came back from that period with of Montreal? <laughs> well, that's a long story, yo. Well, uh, it's basically I came back in like 2003 or something like that. Uh, Derek and Kevin kind of were on the outs. And uh, Kevin had just gotten married to Nina from Norway, who rules. And uh, Nina moved to the states, of course. So they got and they got, went after they got married. And so, while while I hadn't been in the band, they had all like lived in a country house and did some records out there. We call that OMM Mark II, a Montreal Mark II out there, but. Like I said, him and Derek were kind of on the outs. Kevin wanted to get more control of the recording process, which Derek had kind of taken as his kind of domain. So there was some friction there. And so Kevin kind of decided he couldn't play with Derek anymore. And I think Derek was fine with that. <laughs> you know, uh, I love Derek. Derek is one of my all-time friends. Um, so, you know, I understand it. Uh, so anyway, they split. I thought I was going to play bass, but Kevin asked me if I wanted to play guitar in the band again because we'd been hanging out a lot since he moved back to town with Nina. We'd be kind of like we're best friends. Kevin and I were just totally best friends for many years. So, but his songs are tricky, you know. And uh, so it was, it was, I had, I had to step up to learn all his crazy chords. But uh, I was able to do it. And uh, we went on tour after a while. Well, we'd done this like special gig as the Dutch Scrubber. That was kind of like an early predecessor one-off gig that we did as this other band. And Kevin had played, filled in uh, with Elfhour actually from time to time in the early days too uh, for like live gigs and stuff. So, and then we, anyway, then we played in this band Great Lakes together, which we did touring before I got back in the band. And we had a good time touring together. So I think that just kind of led up to me coming back in the band. Um, and then uh, 
there was this record called Satanic Panic in the Attic. And at this point, Kevin thought maybe the band was done because uh, Nina got pregnant. Like a week into the tour, they found out she was pregnant. And he's like, that's it. I'm not making money touring. We're not making money. I mean, at most, uh, Montreal sold like 5,000 records. And uh, I mean, I think the record deal was over too. You know what I mean? So it was just like, eh, we're like barely a, a, a niche cult band for uh, twee poppers. <laughs> you know right. what I mean? So it didn't really seem really promising or anything. But he made this good record called Satanic Panic in the Attic, and we toured that. Nina played bass. And we did the tour. It was like a six-week tour with Nina pregnant. And it was awesome. And uh, I don't know if we were like number one on CMJ or something like that, but something like that. We were like in the top three. We had all these kids coming out of the gigs. And uh, it was exciting. And we were like a good band. We were tight. So it was really exciting. My friend Jason, I got him in the band, Jason Neesmith. He did that tour with us. And uh, Dottie and Jamie, Dottie Alexander and Jamie Huggins were in the band. They were like the leftovers from the Mark II. They had to do some adjusting to the new dynamic. It was a bit tough for them. But uh, it was great. And so, yeah, from there, uh, it just kind of continued. We had another good record after that. And next record after that was uh, this record called Hissing Fauna, Are You the Destroyer? And we did shit. All of a sudden, we were like a legit band. I think that record sold like 100,000 copies or something like that, at least. I don't know what it's sold now, but. So we played all the cool shit, but uh, yeah, I got to tour the world. I played every festival, you know. I've been tons of cool places, all thanks to that band, so. Um, and the great fa the fans are just like really sweet and cool. So it was like always good, even when it was weird. <laughs> <laughs> and it did get weird, but you know, even through that, there's a lot to appreciate, you know. Right, right. Well, um, you're about to uh, depart Athens again. Uh, yep. Uh, you're heading to uh, Berlin. Yeah, I'm going to the Berlin. That's w right. Yeah. What? Uh, where do you see yourself going musically here in the future? Uh, it's hard to say. I need to get a band in, in, in the Berlin. Um, I have kind of like some guys that I play with in Norway and I have a record that I recorded when I was over there previously. I've been in Berlin on and off for a couple of years. Uh, and I have these friends in Norway. So I had been going up there a couple of times to record with them. So we have a record that we need to finish, which you know, it's not in Berlin, but it's, I'm in Europe. <laughs> so hopefully we'll do like a Scandinavian tour or something. Yeah. Um, Berlin's got some rock and roll, but it's more like a, as everybody knows, it's a more of a, a bleep and bloop kind of place. It's a techno place, which I'm okay with, but uh, my ears get fatigued pretty quick at this point, even though the rock stuff does too. But I, I need to find, I'm really into like, uh, I have this band called Space Trucks, which you've, oh, yeah. you've heard some stuff. So that's more like, a, I call that Afro Kraut beat. It's got like Afro beat, Kraut rock, and uh, Space rock, and um, a bit of like Africa Bombata 
kind of thing. I just like uh, it's kind of cliche now. I think everybody's already done it to a degree, but I had that band about ten years ago, That's and awesome. I made a bunch of cool recordings and stuff. But uh, ended up moving to Philly for a girl. For love. For good, for for that love, city of brotherly love. There you go. So, band kind of disbanded, and I don't know. It's hard. My, the idea for that band was like, really, I wanted like six or seven people in that band, and it wasn't financially uh, doable. I had to figure out a way to do it, like much smaller scale. So, anyway, yeah. But uh, yeah, I've got a bunch of different uh, types of projects that haven't seen the light of day. So. Some hodgepodge of that hopefully will happen in Berlin. We'll see. Um, I've got a few people that I've connected over there, but I need to make some more connections, you know? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, uh, where's the best place for our listeners to uh, find your music <laughs> and to... Uh, Nowheres, man. Uh, uh, <laughs> I'm hoarding it. Uh, I, You know, I've, it's like such a stupid shit thing, you know? One thing I've learned is to try to keep projects pretty concise so you can finish them. I'm I'm fucking a uh, perfectionist and uh I don't let stuff like out of my grasp for stupid reasons. But I've got a lot of shit that's super close to being done. I have like uh this idea that I'm going to put out six records that are all completely different on Bandcamp on on the same day. Right. <laughs> you know, right. like I mean that's 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 kind of my idea but uh well, uh, how can our listeners get in touch with you? To, uh... <laughs> I do have an Instagram, uh, BP Helium. You can find me on there. Uh, that's about it. I mean, I sometimes, you know, you could write me on Facebook or something like that. At some point, I will put it out there. See, this is you need to like can this interview for a while, Johnny, until I have something <laughs> to oh, release. Man. We're 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 running with this, but but. By by also saying that you you heard it here first on the ratio podcast that Brian will have some music coming <laughs> soon. You know, if if you're lucky, maybe uh, I can make you like a five song uh, carousel of of BP. You know, yeah, hell yeah, yeah. 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 We'll get that up on the website uh, ratiopodcast dot com and on our YouTube channel. Not to sound like a uh, salesman. <laughs> Sell it, brother. So, so you you know we got Charlie. Charlie is the mastermind behind the the Ratio Podcast. He is. He's he runs. And uh, yeah, I mean he's fucking fucking slave driver, man. Uh, he's got a vicious tongue. He does, man. Well, uh, Brian, I want to thank you for coming on, and uh, best of luck in Berlin, and uh, keep us uh, in mind here at home in Athens. My heart's always in Athens, Georgia, Johnny. Oh man, that's an awesome that's an awesome send off there. Yes, yes. All right, choose y'all. All right, I want to thank Mr. Brian Poole for being on the podcast and being such a good friend uh, to the podcast. He's been helping us out with so many things, like the website, the YouTube channel, all that's Brian and his goodness. Um, and uh, make sure you check out his music. Um, he's 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 a really really interesting dude, and and we're gonna miss him here in Athens as he's headed back to Berlin. So if you are listening to this from Berlin, be on the outlook for Mr. Brian Poole. Say hello to him, and uh, 
buy them a beer. Um, but that's our show for tonight. Uh, stay switched on, and we'll talk to you soon.